turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We've been working our way through this series on the end times called Be Prepared. And I have several sermons left to preach. This sermon today that I have entitled The Return of the King. And I am, my next sermon will be entitled Judgment Day. And the final sermon that I'm preaching, I'm thinking about one more. We'll see. The final one will be entitled Home. So today, let's look at this subject, the return of the king from Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, um, chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, Encourage one another with these words. Amen. Well, over the last few weeks, we have been dealing with some pretty heavy stuff from Scripture in the sermons that I've been preaching. We have uh, been wrestling with the what Scripture has to say about the Antichrist and the spirit of the Antichrist and um, I have mentioned many times, and I know that uh, uh, there are a few people at least that are uh, listening or here in the building today hearing me speak that would that would disagree with the just the fact that the spirit of Antichrist is alive and well in our times and it has it is troubling to see the rising antagonism toward Christians in our society and we 've talked about the um, just the reality that increasingly what is wrong is considered to be right and what is right is considered to be wrong. We've wrestled with the call in Scripture to prepare ourselves as God's people for persecution and for suffering. And those are hard things to think about. And yet Scripture calls us to be prepared. And Scripture calls us to be on our guard against all kinds of things and the kinds of things that can divide us as God's people. And we talked about that in my last sermon. But while the Bible's teaching about the end times is tremendously sobering because the end times are a sobering period of history, and the Bible's warnings are stern, At the same time, what the Bible says about the end times also offers great hope and reassurance to those who trust in the Lord. 
And this morning, now that we have been confronted with the dire predictions of trouble and hardship for God's people, and we've heard the urgent warnings that Scripture gives for us to prepare ourselves so that we can stand firm when the day of evil comes, now that we have wrestled with those things, I want to turn our attention to that great hope, to that assurance that we have. That the last days hold out for the people of God. And I've chosen the passage that we read there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 um, as our text. And Paul is writing to the Thessalonians to instruct them about Christ's return in part uh, because they were concerned about Loved ones that they had lost, and the Achoas are with us, and Diana is with us. They have lost loved ones, and others have lost loved ones, and they are, have, they were, the Thessalonians were concerned. What, what's gonna happen to them? Are they gonna miss out on the return of Christ? And so, Paul's goal in that passage is to reassure them that, um, those, both those who have gone before us who are asleep, Paul says, and he uses that terminology in order to to express the idea that death is temporary. When we go to sleep, we wake up. And the same is true when, when believers die. That is a temporary situation. And in the midst of that, he also instructs them about Christ's return. And there are numerous other passages that talk about that great day and give us insight from a number of different angles about what the return of Christ will be like. And so, though we've read Paul's letter here in uh, 1 Thessalonians, I want to look at several passages in order to kind of provide what I hope is a big picture perspective of what is happening when Christ returns. I want to start in Acts chapter 1, because Acts chapter 1 um, is kind of the beginning of uh, what we would consider this period of waiting. Um, Acts chapter 1 and verses 9 through 11, Luke says, As they, that is, the disciples, were looking on, Jesus was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way that you saw him go. And so that is the promise. It's interesting that um, the disciples, it says they were standing there gazing up into heaven. I think they were looking up saying, what? What what now? They were confused and perplexed. Because after the resurrection, it only made sense to them that now is the time that Jesus was going to establish his kingdom. And so they asked him actually, Probably while they were actually on the way to the Mount of Olives, Jesus is is leading them along, and they're asking him, "Now is now the time you're going to establish your kingdom? And it's interesting Jesus' answer, because his answer falls in line with what we've been saying over and over and over again in this series. He says, Now is it is not for you to 
to know the times or the seasons. And so they have this expectation that the kingdom is now. And in a sense it is. And yet Jesus leads them to the Mount of Olives. And he returns to the Father. But the promise is a promise that was given to them and continues to be relevant to every one of us. This same Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will come again in the same manner that he was taken up. And there are several passages that describe what Jesus' return will be like. I want to read several of them, and we'll look at uh, what Paul says to the Thessalonians as well. But in uh, Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7, um, we read this. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Remember what the angel said to the disciples? He was taken up into the clouds, and he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who have pierced him. And then in Matthew 24, some of you are trying to keep up, so go ahead and turn there if you if you want to. Chapter, uh, chapter 24 of Matthew, verses 30 and 31. And we read this text way back in the beginning of this series. This is Jesus' instruction to the disciples about the times of the end. And he says, And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and And great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. And then Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 16 The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And I love this. And so will we will always be with the Lord. Just three of many passages that talk about the return of Christ. And as you probably picked up as we read through them, there are several common themes that are there in those passages that we read. And I just want to point some of those themes out to you to help us kind of get a sense of what Scripture has to say about this event. The first thing is that in the passage we read from Revelation, it says, Every eye will see him. Every eye will see him. When Jesus came the first time, he came to a little town, to poor parents. He did not was not born into the halls of a palace, and there was no big fanfare at his arrival. He came in obscurity. But this time, when he returns, his coming will not be in obscurity. This time he is not coming in meekness where he can be easily overlooked or dismissed. Scripture says every eye will see him 
even those who have pierced him. So not only will those who believe see him, but those who don't believe will also witness his coming. The word that Paul uses is a word that you've probably heard, a Greek word. The word is parousia. And it means unveiling, the unveiling or the appearing. And the implication is is that at present there is a veil of unbelief that renders many people blind to who Christ truly is. That was that's so evident in the New Testament as you read. You have people that recognize him, people that put their faith in him, and people who are unable to recognize him for all kinds of different reasons. But the idea of the parousia is that the veil will be removed. Those who believe and those who scoff will see him clearly. So that's the first thing that scripture says. Every eye will see him. Secondly, scripture says, and there are several, the several passages that we read point this out, that he will come on the clouds of heaven. What's that about? The clouds, which you may know, are associated with the presence and the glory of God himself. You remember uh, at the transfiguration when Jesus took uh, a few of his disciples up to the mountain and he was transfigured before them. The text tells us that there was a cloud that covered everything because God was there. His presence was there. And the same was true in the Old Testament account of Uh, God meeting with the people of Israel at Mount Sinai, a cloud descended. And in other places in Scripture, when God comes, He comes in a cloud. And the cloud is a reflection of the awesome and awful presence of God in His power and His glory. So when, when we are told that Jesus is coming on the clouds of heaven, it speaks to his divinity. In Christ, God himself is coming in all of his divine power to assert his sovereign rule over the earth. The third theme that we find repeated in what Scripture says about Christ's return is that it will be accompanied by a cry of command. Remember all the way back in Genesis chapter 1 when God is creating the universe and bringing all things into existence. It is repeated over and over again. And God said, and it was. Don't you wish sometimes you could speak things into existence (laughs) or speak things out of existence? God spoke the heavens and the earth into existence. And by his command, he not only brought them into existence, but he also established all things in their proper order. 
And he will return as the creator who speaks and all creation obeys. Because of sin, the world has fallen into disobedience and into chaos and disorder. But his coming will initiate the return of the creation to its proper order. Chaos will be gone. Disobedience will be gone. And all things will once again be brought under his sovereign will by the authority of his command. Another thing we see repeated is that his coming will also be accompanied by the voice of the archangel. In Matthew 25, back in the teaching that Jesus himself gives about his return, he says that when he returns, all the host of heaven will accompany him. The picture that we're intended to see is like an entourage traveling with a king, or even more, a king coming with his army. And just as a king is accompanied by those that are along with him, the king of heaven will be accompanied by his royal entourage, and his arrival will be announced by the archangel. Just as a king, as he travels, the heralds go before, and they announce, the king is coming, be ready, the king is here. So the archangel will announce his coming. And then we also read about the sound of the trumpet of God that also accompanies his return. And we are accustomed to that as well. We aren't people who have a lot of experience with kings, but we know enough about what happens when kings travel. And certainly it was true, the people in, that, that would have read the, this, um, these words um, in, in first century Um, in the first century world, would certainly have been able to picture the idea of the king being preceded by his heralds who would go before them announcing his coming and also announcing his coming with trumpets. In the same way, Christ's coming will be announced by the sound of the trumpet of God. What does the trumpet of God sound like? (laughs) Right? Occasionally, I heard Dave say, "Amen." Occasionally, he'll he'll play his trumpet for us, and I love the sound of a trumpet. And man, it can make a blast. What will the trumpet announcing the coming of the King sound like? The call of the archangel. And the sound of the trumpet will not only announce the king's return, but as Paul tells us here in 1 Thessalonians, it will also be a gathering cry calling all of his faithful subjects to his side. And so every man and woman through history who has acknowledged God as their true king and sovereign, 
will be gathered to him. Those who have died from Abraham and Moses and the prophets and the apostles and believers through the ages like Chris and John will be raised up to life. And together with those who are still living at his return, they will be caught up, Paul says, to meet him in the air. That's another part of this picture that Scripture gives us of the arrival of the king. And again, it uses the the imagery of um, first century practices and practices that relate to kings and their travels. That when a king would arrive at a city, before he would actually get to the city, his loyal subjects and the dignitaries in the city would go out to meet him, and they would join the entourage, and they would usher him back into the city. And in the same way, the king will arrive from heaven with his heavenly entourage, and those who are of the earth, who are, of, who are his... Both the living and the dead will be caught up to meet him. And they will join that great heavenly host at his side. And together they will accompany him as he comes to claim what is rightfully his. What a spectacle. What a procession. This is not the queen parading in her royal carriage so that everyone can make a fuss over her. This is not the armies of men with their tanks and guns on display in an effort to impress and intimidate. This is not the pompous and the powerful and the self-important showing off. This is a regal, triumphant procession of cosmic proportions that is entirely befitting the king whose arrival it proclaims and the victory that it celebrates. It is the fulfillment of the hopes for which the saints through the ages have lived and died. It is the culmination that the people of God have been seeking ever since Jesus taught us to pray, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth, just as it is done in heaven. And according to Paul, every believer will participate in that procession. If you acknowledge him and serve him as your true and rightful king, you will be there. Can you imagine that? What will that be like to be caught up to join the heavenly hosts when the king of creation comes to claim his rightful throne? 
And when he comes, he will assert his sovereign authority as the creator of heaven and earth. And there will be no doubt in anyone's mind, doubter or not, that the true and rightful king of creation has come. And when he comes, he will establish justice on the earth. We're all looking for justice, aren't we? If you took a poll, you wouldn't find many people that would say, no, I really don't want justice. Everyone wants righteousness and peace on earth. And justice is a big thing right now that people are saying, we want justice and we know, let us tell you what justice looks like, right? The problem is, though, that in this sin-torn world, we don't know how to achieve justice. We don't know how to achieve peace and righteousness. For one thing, we can't even agree on what those things really are. And the rulers and the politicians tell us that they have the answers, but even the best of them are deeply flawed. And time and time again, the solutions that we put in place come with their own set of problems. And often the solutions are worse than the problems they were meant to remedy. Do you find that to be true? But there is one who is coming who will establish justice on the earth. He and he alone has the right to sit on the throne, because not only did he create all things by the authority of the word, but he is also, as as it is proclaimed in the book of Revelation, he is also the lamb who was slain to make all things new. And so, in that passage in Revelation 4 and 5, the question is asked, who is worthy to open the scroll? Who is worthy to sit on the throne? There is only one who is worthy. He is the rightful king, and he is coming to claim his throne. And when he comes, no power in heaven or on earth will be able to stand against him. And he will set right all that is wrong. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. The question is, is he your king? He is the one true king. There is no disputing that, and the day will come, Paul says, when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. He is the true king. But is he your king? That's not just a question for unbelievers. It is true that if you don't recognize Jesus and have not turned to him, for salvation, you need to do that. You need to recognize him as your Lord and King. But it's a question for believers as well. 
a lot of people believe in Jesus. And it's one thing to want Him to be your Savior and to accept His offer of eternal life. It's another to surrender your life to His authority as your sovereign King. I find that I am continually wrestling with that. You find that to be true in your own life? Wrestling with the challenge of surrendering your life to his authority as your king? I have to continually revisit the question, where does my allegiance truly lie? And in what have I really put my hope? It's interesting that the Lord's Prayer, that the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, begins with the appeal that God's kingdom would come and that his will would be done on earth just as it is in heaven. The point of that prayer is God's will is done perfectly in heaven, but that his will would also be done on earth. And if his will is to be done on earth, and if I am going to pray that his will be done on earth, then I've got to be willing for His will to be done right here in me. So easy to get distracted. And we need that constant reminder when we pray, may your kingdom come, may your will be done. We need that reminder to keep us centered. Because He and He alone has the right to sit on the throne of my heart and your heart. And our hope ultimately is in Him and in Him alone. Is He your King? He is the King. Is He your King? So may the closing words of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22, almost to the very end, May those words be our heart's cry. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Come. Let's pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, may these words, may these truths sink deep into our hearts and may they stir in us a longing for you. A desire that our true king would come and claim his throne. Jesus taught us that we are to seek your kingdom first. And everything else will fall into its rightful place. Because when you are on the throne, everything is in its rightful place. Wet our appetites for you. Give us a desire for your coming. Take your rightful place in our hearts. Even as we longingly wait for you to take your rightful place in the earth as king 
of all creation. Come, Lord Jesus, come. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.